You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose podcast. For more sermons and content, visit sojournmontrose.org. Okay, so we're going to jump into verse 17 of chapter 5, which at, at first glance may seem like an arbitrary starting point, right? Uh, in that this is uh, not really the beginning of Jesus' longest recorded sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, but it rather is kind of, kind of uh, in the beginning, uh, the middle of the beginning, right? Uh, so we skip a little bit. And yet, while it may seem like an arbitrary starting point, the reality is that the, the statement that Jesus makes in these few sentences is essentially the thesis statement of the entire sermon. And so let's begin with verse 17. It says this, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. So remember, this is Jesus speaking, right? Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. It's a fairly clear statement that Jesus makes that doesn't really require a whole lot of fleshing out on my part, but... We need to know that when Jesus uses the word the law and the prophets, essentially what he is referencing is all of the texts that were regarded as Scripture before right, Jesus was born. We would know that today as the, the Old Testament. right? So essentially what Jesus is saying is that I have not come to abolish the Old Testament, but rather I have come to fulfill it. Now this matters. This matters for a lot of reasons that we'll talk about in just a few moments, but it matters first and foremost because it confronts, I think, a trap that many of us fall into when we begin reading uh, this Bible that we have in front of us. And the temptation is, is this, right? The temptation is to look at the Old Testament and to say those are the books that were written before Jesus, and here is the New Testament those books that are written after Jesus and are written about Jesus, right? Two distinct books, and really, only the new one matters, right? Because the old one's gone away, right? We treat it like our iPhone success. It's no longer relevant. We tend to think of these two testaments as distinct, as unrelated, Right? Here's what I mean, just as an example, right? We, we tend to think of the Old Testament as telling us a story about a God who is angry and who is vengeful. And we tend to look at the New Testament as telling us about a God of grace and of mercy, loving kindness, long-suffering. We tend to look at the Old Testament as a story that's about the nation of Israel. And we tend to look at the New Testament as a story about Jesus and His people, the church, we tend to look as the Old at the Old Testament as being primarily about the law. And we tend to look at the New Testament as being primarily about grace. And so basically the Old Testament gets uh, the bad rap in that all of the negative adjectives are attached to it. It's old, it's law, it's anger, it's painful to read. But Jesus comes and He rearranges, or at least He should in this statement, rearrange how we look 
at those books, at the law, at the prophets, because Jesus says, I've not come to abolish it. I've not come to set it aside. I've not come to do away with it. But that I've come to fulfill it. And I think Jesus gives us some some imagery by using the the words that he uses. Now, the Greek word for abolish means uh, to, to demolish, to destroy, as in like a structure, right? So imagine a building, right? A structure. He says, I've not come to abolish that. I've not come to tear it down. I've not come to do a demolition job with regards to the law. Instead, he says, I've come to fulfill it, which means to fill full. You pay me to do this. Right? Jesus isn't saying he's come to destroy the law, demolish the law, abolish it, but rather that he's come to fill it full. So let's illustrate what Jesus says in the terms, in the imagery that he himself is giving us, right? The law that Jesus references, the prophets that he references are like the structure of a house. And Jesus has not come to do a complete rebuild. He hasn't come to tear the house down. Rather, he's come to fill it full. He's come to furnish it. He's come to paint it. He's come to show us how the structure is to be used, to be enjoyed, to be shared, to be experienced as a place of refuge. That those are the functions of the law. We just haven't seen its form yet because we haven't seen Jesus, the one who has come to fill it full. He's come to turn the structure of the house into a home. He's saying that in him, the Old Testament, the law, and the prophets reach their fullest expression. If you spend any amount of time in Montrose, you know that you can drive down just about any street and there is usually a shell of a house, right, that's being built. And depending on, you know, what your tastes are, you may look at it and go, well, that doesn't look so great. Or you might, you might look at it and say, well, that, that bedroom looks small or that doesn't look like a place that I would want to live, right? Then as the months roll on and as the work progresses, right? M- most of the time, you, you get what is a wonderful looking structure. You begin to, you begin to actually be able to visualize what life could be like in this place because you're not just looking at studs. You're not just looking at a house that's half drywalled, but you're looking at its fullest expression. And then the realtor brings in furniture and TVs and mounts it and makes it look all pretty inside, right? They stage the house. Why? So that when you look at it, you go, this can be home. In the same way, Jesus is saying, I've not come to do away with the law. I've come to fill it full. And when we see that Jesus didn't come to get rid of the law, but to make the law a safe home for us, a refuge for us, it makes what Jesus came to do even bigger. Martin Luther puts it this way. He says, the law is the key which opens the hidden treasure of the gospel. And so let's keep uncovering what Luther means when he says that. Read in verse 18, it says this, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. 
Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And so what's Jesus saying here? If we're not careful, we'll miss the forest for the trees. Do you know that expression? We'll zero in on one particular tree that will miss the context in which that tree lives, this great forest, right? If we focus on individual words in here, we could get tied up really quick, right? We would be tempted in some ways that are unhealthy. We'd be tempted to understand the law in some ways that we're not meant to understand it. Because what Jesus is doing here is showing us that the law is more than morality. It's more than that. It's more than a moral code. Doesn't mean it's not that. Just means that it's more than that, right? Verse 19 clues us into this, right? Because in verse 19, Jesus says that anyone who relaxes even the very least of one of the commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Now, for us, that just sounds frightening, right? Because I don't know about you, but um, I woke up this morning, so I've not done what this requires of me. But Jesus is saying something incredibly important. Because in this time, right, the most revered teachers of the law and the prophets were the scribes and the Pharisees. They get mentioned in verse 20. They were scriptural and spiritual authorities, right? If you needed to know what the law and the prophets said or what it meant for your life, they were the ones not only who would tell you, but who would show you with their lives. Or so they would say. But even the scribes and the Pharisees had categories for portions of the law. They had categories known as the heavier or the weightier matters of the law and those which were light. Essentially, if you get these things right, you can just try really hard here and it'll be okay. In essence, they would say that some laws are weightier than others, that the more weighty ones would demand your full obedience, but the lighter ones, you could just try your best. So what did that mean? That meant that the scribes and the Pharisees, these spiritual, scriptural authorities of the day, relaxed some of the lesser commandments. And Jesus says this is utterly unacceptable. Jesus says, I'm after every dot. I'm after every iota. And so for the average person that's hearing Jesus' sermon right now, they would have said, those are the people we look up to scripturally and spiritually. Those are the people that we revere and respect for their righteousness. He's calling them the least in the kingdom of heaven. 
And so they would have first been just sort of awed by that statement. But then they would have inevitably turned inward and said, well, what does that mean for me? And that, that might be the, the same question that, that we're all answering this morning, right? Or trying to answer, what does that mean for me? Because again, I know that I wouldn't be numbered among the scribes and the Pharisees with regards to this sort of external, visible, quantifiable righteousness. And yet, according to Jesus, this righteousness that the Pharisees have is not, in fact, true righteousness. That while it is external, while it is visible, while it is quantifiable, it is still insufficient. And he makes it clear in verse 20 when he says this. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And so listen, if verses 17, 18, and 19 were like the lead jab, this is the right hook, right? It's the haymaker. Knocks all of them out, right? The scribes and the Pharisees, as far as could be seen from the external side of things, obeyed the law. They were respected and revered because of it. There would have been no one among the peoples that were hearing this sermon that would have been considered more righteous. And so essentially, everyone that's listening to Jesus right now, whether you're a scribe or a Pharisee or whether you are utterly broken and lost, an outcast, everybody would have had one word in their mind. Impossible. Impossible. The scribes and Pharisees would have looked at their record and they would have gone, impossible. Nobody can do better than this. Show me anybody else who's done this better than I have. Impossible. And then the least and the Last and the lost would have gone, well, if they can't do it, I sure can't. Impossible. And so this is a confusing statement for the people that are listening to Jesus talk right now. And it's probably a confusing statement for you and for me as well. Because again, this is the Jesus that's all about grace, right? So the law doesn't matter, and how I behave doesn't matter, and my righteousness doesn't matter because I've got Jesus's, right? Uncomfortable verse to read. But it's a verse that can be understood when we read it within its context. And so we don't, we don't have time to go into all of the details and the nuance, but at, immediately following these few sentences that Jesus speaks... He gives us six sections. He, he addresses six things in his sermon. And so if you don't like my three points, take it up with Jesus. I only do half. Um, six things, right? And, and of those six things, they all begin this way. They begin with, you have heard it said, blank, but I say to you, blank. All right? Let's just take... Let's just take the first one as an example. Jesus talks about anger, and this is what he says in verse 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment, right? 
Jesus says, listen, you've, you've heard this before. This is not news to you, what I'm about to say. You've heard it said that if you murder someone, you'll be liable for that murder. You'll be liable for judgment, right? Fairly clear, right? The law expressed right there. But then Jesus in 22 says this, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Like, we, <laughs> we're going to back it up that far, okay? It's like, it's, not, it's no longer just about not killing people, it's about like not even being angry towards them. What's Jesus saying? Again, he's saying that the external doing of the law is not enough. That you have to go beyond living just the letter of the law, which is you shall not murder, right? That's the letter of the law. So if you haven't murdered today, then you've walked by the letter of the law. Congratulations. Right? And if you have, we should talk. Um, or maybe not. Uh, <laughs> You have to go beyond living the letter of the law and you have to actually live the spirit of the law. And so we begin to understand a little bit of why the righteousness of the Pharisees and the scribes is not enough. Because where they have externalized the law and they have lived up to sort of the, the letter, right? In the spirit, they haven't gone far enough. They may not have murdered, but they may still be guilty of anger, right? Or what's the next example? In verse 27, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. Verse 28, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. It's not about the letter. It's about the spirit of the law. And so what we begin to understand about the law is that the law is more concerned with the heart than the actual actions that you perform. Because it's out of the heart that our actions flow. And so here's what we begin to understand about the law. We begin to understand that the law and that the prophets from the beginning were given to us in order to reveal the heart of man and the holiness of God. Think of it this way. Think of, think of the law and think of the prophets like an MRI machine. It can show us the tumor, but we're still powerless to remove it. You see, where the Pharisees went wrong is that they, they tried to use the law in a way that it was never meant to be used. Because the law was never meant to be the means by which we fixed ourselves. It was the means by which we came to know our need for a doctor. And what's so wonderful about Jesus coming is that the doctor has come. And Jesus is qualified to be the doctor precisely because he has fulfilled the law and the prophets. Every dot, every iota. And not only in the letter, but in the spirit. So what was impossible for us, Jesus came and did, right? Jesus did for us 
what was impossible. And this is what makes Jesus' coming so wonderful. It's not because, simply because he was born of a virgin or because wise men showed up or because we like angels and gifts and Santa, right? Like, his coming into the world is wonderful because now we see what the law was meant to do for us. It's a place of refuge, not a place to run from. Jesus lives both the letter and the spirit of the law. And in so doing, he fixes what we could never fix. His impossible command is made possible because on the cross, his perfect life is substituted for our imperfect lives. That's what makes God the Father not capricious or excessive in his judgment because our sin was put on Jesus. Right? That's, that's the text from Corinthians, that God made him who knew no sin to be sin so that you and I might be the righteousness of God himself. And brothers and sisters, it is only the righteousness of God that exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. This is why it's so important for us to hold on to this reality that, yes, Jesus came and he was a man, and yet he was also fully God. And in his humanity, in the fullness of his humanity, he was tempted in every way and yet lived the perfect life, letter and spirit of the law. Because here's the thing. If Jesus wasn't perfect, If Jesus didn't do this, if Jesus didn't fulfill the law and the prophets, then his death on our behalf would have been a nice sentiment, but it would have been insufficient. But he did fulfill the law and the prophets, and he did live the perfect life, and so his death is sufficient on our behalf, and we have been made righteous through the work of Jesus. And so Jesus coming to fulfill the law and us seeing the law in the way that Jesus sees the law should change how we live in a myriad of ways. But here's here's three that I think are probably the most important. If Jesus fulfilled the law, every dot, every iota, then we can live lives of peace and rest in the soul. We might have busy hands, but we need not have a busy spirit. Why? Well, because through Jesus, we can actually begin to live the spirit of the law instead of just the letter. Right? That when Jesus comes and calls us to follow him, that we're actually, by, by the work of Jesus, by the Holy Spirit, making us new creations, right? The old is gone, the new has come, right? We're buried with Christ in the likeness of his death, dead to sin, now alive to Christ. That that impossible command has actually been made possible for us. We're no longer looking at this like probably most of Jesus' hearers and frantically going, what am I going to do now? but rather we're saying, look at what Jesus did now. Peace, rest in the soul. Second thing is this. If if Jesus fulfilled the law, every dot, every iota, then we can live lives of extravagant grace. Extravagant grace. Both with ourselves, 
with one another and with our neighbors. And here's the thing, it really it starts with ourselves because I don't know about you, but like I, you know, I tend to be least gracious with myself. And then what happens is because I sense my inability, because I sense my unrighteousness, I start looking for places where I can find worse unrighteousness. And then I start holding people to standards that are standards that I've arbitrarily put on them. And I take great comfort from that, right? Because I can pray to God, thank you for not making me like that tax collector. And yet it's the repentance of the tax collector that's received by God. We can live lives of extravagant grace because we're no longer under the law. Rather, we are covered by the law. We're covered by Jesus' righteous fulfillment of the law. And so we can pursue walking according to our obedience to Jesus with extravagant grace. And here's the thing. If it isn't the law that fixed us, we won't rely on the law to fix other people. We might actually start loving them. We might actually start seeing them as valuable, even though there may be no external measure by which that would be true. Because guess what? There wasn't anything of value in us. What does Ephesians 2 say? We were dead in our trespasses and sins following the course of this world. And yet, God, being rich in mercy, has made us alive in Christ. By grace, through faith, not of works, so that none can boast, but now we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which He has prepared in advance, that we should walk in them. Which leads me to my third point. If Jesus fulfilled the law, every jot... Every iota, then we can trust him when he says he'll make us holy. In Jesus, there is no deceit, he is utterly righteous. And so when he says, You shall be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect, in verse 48 of this same chapter, He's not only issuing a command, he's also issuing a promise. He's issuing a promise that what he decrees comes to pass, that he's faithful to his word. And so when he says, you shall be holy as your Father in heaven is holy, it's because you will be. And so that means that we can live out the spirit of the law with conviction. That means we can strive for holiness' sake knowing that our future glory is not what's at stake. It's not. We have an inheritance in Christ Jesus that is kept in a place where neither moth can destroy nor thief can steal, that is being guarded by God's own power, who by faith is also guarding us. Right? There's no height, no depth, no width, no breadth. No authority that can remove us from the presence of God Himself. 
And so we can joyfully strive to be like our Father. And so here's what happens. If we see the law in this way, it does two things. It does two things for us. First, it guards us from legalism. Because no matter how much law-keeping we do, it will never be enough to earn God's favor. Jesus had to come to keep the law for us. He's not an insurance policy. He is our only hope. And so we can follow Him in joyful and humble obedience. We can be good, moral Christians, knowing that it's not our good morality that makes us Christians. It guards us from legalism. But it also guards us from license or excess. Because you can't be a disciple of Jesus, one who is taught by Jesus, if you don't follow Jesus. And Jesus was a righteous man. Jesus was righteous in a way that we'll never be until he finishes the work in us. But that doesn't remove from us the obligation to strive. This is Paul saying, right? I press on toward the prize for which God in Christ Jesus has called me heavenward. I press on. And if we're honest, I think that, that this understanding the law in this way and with this particular effect is probably the most important for us in the room. Because we tend to connote, right, everything about morality as, as bad. It's got negative connotation, right? So words like legalism, right? Are you, are you legalistic or do you lean towards grace? Do you lean towards the law or do you lean towards grace? right? Negative, good. And so I think many of us, in essence, find ourselves asking the same question that Paul asks in Romans chapter 6 when he says, shouldn't we sin more that grace may abound? Right? Like, if we sin more, then there's more of Jesus' grace put on display, right? So shouldn't we sin more, right? Isn't that isn't that the diagnostic of our heart right there? Oh, Jesus, thank you for this amazing gift of grace. Let's abuse it. <laughs> Should we sin more that grace may abound? What, what, how does Paul answer? By no means, right? In the strongest of terms, by no means. For don't you know that those of you who have been baptized with Christ have been baptized into his death? Raised to walk in newness of life. I'll conclude with this sentence from C.S. Lewis. Um, so if you take nothing else away, this would be good to write down. Because um, he summarizes, summarizes it so well. This is what he says. The Christian does not think that God will love us because we are good, but that God will make us good because he loves us. Let's pray toward that end. Father, thank you so much for this morning. Uh, thank you again just for the opportunity to be gathered together with your people this morning. And I pray, Lord, that as we 
uh, come to the table where we will take bread that is broken uh, as a symbol of the broken body of Jesus. As we dip that bread in the cup, which symbolizes the blood of Jesus shed for us, Lord, that we would truly take it with not only dependence this morning, but with great joy at what you have done for us. God, I pray for people in the room this morning that may have thought they were Christians when they came in, but have still been living their everyday life as though they were building a resume that you would review upon their entrance into heaven. pray that today that they would repent and believe for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And that they would find rest and peace in the knowledge of the reality that it is Jesus' work and Jesus' righteousness that makes us acceptable before you. That means we can come before your throne of grace and make petition to you to do these things in us and to do these things through us. And I pray for those of us, Lord, who have been Christians for a really long time and who continue to slide back into this thinking that either our works matter too much or they don't matter at all. Because there's truth in both. It matters that we follow you, but it also matters that we don't put our trust in how well we follow you. And so, Lord, as we come to the table, allow us to rejoice and to enjoy this moment as we express our need for you. It's in Jesus' name we pray.